Okay, Ruth chapter 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young woman you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash therefore and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. And he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then, as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went to the city, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. This is the word. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful that you have given to us your holy word. And Father, we pray that you would use your word once again as you faithfully do every day as we approach it in faith, that you would speak to us, that you would instruct us, that you would continue to guide us in the truth. Jesus, you taught us that we would be sanctified by the truth and that, of course, it is the word that is truth. So, Father, sanctify your church today. Continue the great work of forming us into the image of Christ, the true man, the perfect man. Lord, we pray that you would help us today to understand this text. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to glean the meaning of this text. And Lord, that the ways that it applies to each of our lives would again produce godliness and Christ-likeness in each of us. So speak to us, minister to us through your holy word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, go ahead and grab a seat. The title of this morning's sermon from Ruth chapter 3 is The Proposal. The Proposal. Now, I know that that's a little bit of a risky title because some of you, as I say that title, your mind goes back to a rom-com from a decade ago with Sandra Bullock and Ryan Reynolds called The Proposal. But it was a calculated risk because that's not that big of a deal because, in fact, there's some similarities between that movie and the story here in Ruth chapter 3. In both that movie and Ruth 3, plotting and scheming leads to a proposal in order to secure a woman's future. And in both the film and this story, after the initial acceptance of the proposal, 
major obstacles stand in the way of finding ultimate resolution. So the title is The Proposal. Now my title gives away the fact that the, the thing that is really clear in this text uh, is that there is in fact a marriage proposal. That's kind of the culmination here in chapter three. And uh, the proposal actually happens in verse nine. We'll talk about that in a few minutes, but that much is clear in Ruth chapter three. There's a marriage proposal. It's the events leading up to the proposal though that cause so much confusion and that are very less clear. So that's what we're gonna unpack together. Ruth chapter three, the first five verses, verses one through five deal with what I'm gonna describe as the plan, specifically the plan of Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law. Now, if you were with us last week, chapter two ended with this woman, Ruth, who was a Moabite, meaning that she was not a native Israelite. She was from the land of Moab. She had immigrated to Israel and it ended with her receiving permission from a wealthy, prominent man named Boaz to glean in his fields through the remainder of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest. Translation, Ruth had worked work lined up for her for the next couple of months. That's how chapter two ended. Chapter three now begins, um, again, kind of a couple months later from the end of chapter two. These few months have passed now, and we see right out of the gate that Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, begins scheming. She begins planning. Now, we need to understand that her motives are good motives here, and her motives are very clear. In verse 1, she says this, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? See, Naomi here is sensing a responsibility as a parent or a guardian for her daughter-in-law, Ruth. Now, generally, this would be a father's duty in Israelite society. The dad would secure a marriage for his daughter. But again, if you've been with us in this story, you're aware that Ruth does not have her parents in Israel. Her parents are back in Moab. And the only person who can care for her is her mother-in-law. And so Naomi feels this obligation. She feels this responsibility. She loves her daughter and she wants to set her up with a secure future. The word that she uses here that she wants to seek rest for her means I want to find you a husband. We know that to be the case because some of you will remember Naomi's prayer in chapter 1 verse 9 when she prayed for her daughters in law and this is what she prayed. The Lord grant that you may find rest each of you in the house of her husband. So now is she saying as she's saying to her daughter-in-law, "Hey, it's good for me. I'm going to seek rest for you." She's saying, "I'm going to seek a husband for you. This is what I want to do for you. And she makes clear right out of the gate that their target is this man, Boaz. Their target is this man, Boaz. And the reason for that is because he is a relative of theirs, but also he is a redeemer. He is somebody who can actually redeem them from their plight in Israel. So Boaz is the target. And in these five verses, she's going to lay out her plan. She begins by saying, hey, Boaz will be at the threshing floor tonight, winnowing barley. Now, let me pause for a little bit of background here because pretty much none of us have an agricultural background, but the process of harvesting your grains was that after the gatherers went out and harvested all of the stalks of grain, they would bundle them together and then they would bring them to a place called a threshing floor. 
And this was a place that was usually kind of in an outcrop on a hillside outside of Bethlehem. But it was an area that had a very flat and very hard ground, almost as hard as concrete. The dirt would be packed really, really tight. What they would do is they would take all of their grain and they would lay the grain on the floor of the, th- the threshing floor. And then usually the grain would get treaded out by cattle. They would let cattle into the threshing floor. They would stomp all over these stalks of grain. And then the grain and the chaff or the straw would kind of all get broken up on the threshing floor. The next part of the process was called winnowing, which is what we read Boaz is going to be doing on the threshing floor. Winnowing is essentially where you would take a winnowing fork, just kind of picture a pitchfork, and you would go and you would actually grab the straw and the chaff and the grain, everything that's been treaded on the threshing floor, and you would just lightly toss it into the air. And the evening breeze would be coming through the threshing floor on the hillsides of Bethlehem. And what it would do is it would blow away the lighter straw and chaff and allow the heavier grain just to fall back down to the floor. And so they just do this for hours. And eventually the only thing left on the threshing floor is the grain. And because the floor is nice and hard, they just sweep it up into big piles. And now you'd have a pile of harvested grain, whether that was barley or wheat. So this is what we find Boaz and his employees are going to be doing that very night. Naomi is aware that this is going to happen. After winnowing their crops, the men would typically eat a meal together, drink some wine together. They just have a feast. And then they would end up sleeping on the threshing floor. Now, the reason for this is because they have just harvested all of their grain and it's just sitting there in a pile. So they would actually sleep on the threshing floor so that they could protect their precious crop from animals or from looters who might come through and steal all of their hard-earned grain. So the men would just sleep on the floor of the threshing floor. Some Bible commentators suggest that families would even join in on this and that this was a bit of a celebration in the community as everyone celebrated the harvest that was gathered together. And so even sometimes women and children might go and feast together and even sleep on the threshing floor. Be that as it may, Naomi knows Boaz is going to be there tonight and he's going to stay the night with his grain. And so she gives some instructions to her daughter-in-law. Here's the instructions. Bathe, put perfume on, and put on your cloak. Now some translations say, put on your nicest clothes. However, the word there just simply means your cloak, your outer garment. It would be the the big outer garment that men and women would wear. And it was something that would protect them from the elements, keep them warm at night. But it's interesting what she's describing that Ruth do here could be a process that is loaded with meaning. What I mean to say is that by washing and anointing herself with perfume and putting on her cloak, this could be pointing to a formal ending of Ruth's season of mourning for her previous husband. If you look at 2 Samuel 12, 20, we find there that King David had lost a newborn son. His son died and David had been praying and crying out to the Lord for God to protect his son and heal his son and it didn't happen. And his son dies and David has been grief stricken. But in 2 Samuel 12, 20, we read that After his child actually died, David bathed, he put on perfumed oil, and he put on his cloak. The exact same word here that we find in Ruth chapter 3, he put on his cloak, 
And then he went to the temple to worship the Lord. When he came back from the temple, he sat down and he had a meal. And this whole process signaled to his servants that David's period of mourning for his son had officially ended. It's possible that up until this time, Ruth had been wearing her widow's clothes ever since she had come from Moab. Remember, her husband died and her and her mother-in-law came back to Israel. And it's possible that she was wearing her widow's clothes, that she was even working in the fields with her widow's clothes on. Naomi then would be telling Ruth that the time has come to go communicate to Boaz that her time of grieving is over and that she is open to the prospect of remarriage. In fact, if she had been wearing widow's clothes, that could explain Boaz's reluctance to pursue marriage with Ruth. We know from last week that he was definitely interested in this young woman. He cared for her. He provided for her, but he didn't act on it. And again, this could help explain that. So again, Naomi is saying, look, it's time to communicate that your period of mourning for your former husband is over and you are ready to remarry if the opportunity presents itself. Well, her instructions continue. She says, listen, after you do that, I want you to go down to the threshing floor, but stay kind of undercover. Don't, don't let Boaz know that you're there. Just stay undercover until after he's done feasting. Then he's going to go lay down for the night. And she says, observe the place where he lies down. Now, this reminds us that it was pitch dark in the countryside in Bethlehem. Most of us have probably grown up in areas that have some level of light pollution. And so even on dark nights, it's not pitch dark. But in the ancient world, particularly if you were outside of a city and there wasn't a lot of moonlight on that evening, it could be so dark that you honestly couldn't see your own hand in front of your face. And so she's like, hey, when he goes and lays down, make sure you kind of like mark the spot because once the fires go out and once the lamps go out, you do not want to approach the wrong man. So she observes the place where he lies down. That's part of the instruction. And then she says, perhaps most interestingly of all, she says, uncover his feet and lie down near him and then just wait till he wakes up and tells you what to do. Those are the instructions. That's the plan. Okay, parents, especially if you have daughters, by a show of hands, how many of you are feeling a little uncomfortable, a little uneasy with this game plan for securing a husband? Okay, I guess I'm the only one. I don't even have daughters. Okay, I'm seeing some hands going up now. This seems quite risque, right? Well, you're not alone. You should read the commentators and the Bible scholars on this passage. You can sense that they're almost squirming at their desks as they're trying to explain away what's going on here. It's a very uncomfortable scenario. I think that's part of the point, which I'll get to in a few minutes. But again, this looks like a very risque plan. It gets even more uncomfortable because some of the language that is used here is elsewhere used in the Bible as a euphemism for sexual parts or sexual activity. I'll just give you one example. The uh, expression to uncover a person's feet Think about the ancient world where men and women wore long robes. That expression of uncovering their feet is sometimes used as a euphemism for uncovering their sexual organs. Also, I shouldn't fail to mention that threshing floors were sometimes places where immoral sexual relationships happened. The women, the prostitutes within a city would know that the men are going to be down at the threshing floor and sometimes they would sneak out there under the cover of darkness and offer their services to the men after they had feasted. 
So the question becomes, what on earth is Naomi thinking? I will say that I don't think, like some scholars, that she's telling Ruth to go down to the threshing floor and seduce Boaz. I don't think that's what's going on. I'll show you why in a moment. But the question again is, well, what is she doing? At best, this plan follows some ancient custom of marriage proposal that we just have no knowledge about. And in fact, that's how some scholars try to gloss over the uncomfortable nature of this. They just say, well, obviously there was some custom going on back then in Bethlehem that we just don't know about. And this was completely normal. There was nothing odd about this encounter at all. Now, the problem with that explanation is we have this much evidence for it. Zero. So all it is is just kind of a way of avoiding the awkward tension in the text and kind of punting the ball down the field and saying, we don't have to deal with this. We have no evidence that that was the case. It seems to me and to others that what is going on is this. It seems that Naomi's rashness is on display once again. Remember, it was Naomi and her husband Elimelech's rashness that first brought them to Moab in chapter 1. A famine had fallen on Bethlehem, and rather than waiting on Yahweh, waiting on the Lord to provide for them and give them food, they said, if God's not going to give us what we want and what we need, we'll take matters into our own hands, and off to Moab they went looking for food. And here we see this situation that is coming on Naomi. Harvest is over. Their supplies are going to run out. Boaz and Ruth haven't made plans for marriage yet. And I can see almost Naomi starting to scheme in her room going, how can I fix this? What can I do to make this happen? We're going to be out of food in a couple of weeks. We have no future set up. We have no plan. What can I do? I got an idea. What if I play matchmaker? In fact, what if I really try to accelerate this thing? And what if I try to put pieces together that will ensure that my daughter is married and we're taken care of. It seems again that her rashness is once again manifesting. And one of the things that I think we can glean from this is that sanctification takes time. See, it's, it's, it's clear that Naomi had had a change of heart in Moab and that she had repented and gone back to Yahweh at the end of chapter one and was seeking once again provision from Yahweh. So she's trusting in the Lord at this point in her life. And yet this propensity to try to control her outcome, this propensity to be rash and to take matters into her own hands has not just magically disappeared. And I think sometimes we start following Jesus and we have certain ways of thinking or certain ideas and beliefs about ourselves or about others or about the world. Or we have certain behavior patterns in our life that maybe were ingrained in us in our upbringing and we start following Jesus and then those things pop back up and we go, what's wrong with me? Maybe this isn't working. Maybe God's not really working in my life. What's wrong with you is you're a human with some deep-seated issues all of us have. And it takes time for God to work those things out of us. The Holy Spirit sanctifies us and makes us more like Jesus over time. So I would say to you this morning, be patient and especially be patient with one another. Sometimes you have that husband who's come to Christ and he's still so hard-headed and you're just going, Lord, What is wrong? Be patient. Sanctification takes time. Growth takes time. Either way, what we know is that this is a risky maneuver. Think about it. Ruth could have been harassed by another man on the way to the threshing floor. 
She's going out under the cover of darkness or at least early evening. She could have been, again, harassed by some other man on the way. Or Boaz could have been less than honorable and he could have taken advantage of the situation. Or Boaz could have been just genuinely confused by her brazenness and rejected her. He could have been like, whoa, if this is the kind of woman you are, I want nothing to do with you. So however you look at this, this was a risky plan that Naomi developed. Nevertheless, Ruth follows the plan, which leads us to now the proposal in verses 6 through 9. What we see here is another stunning example of Ruth's loyalty and her devotion to Naomi. Look at verse 6. We read this. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. She listens to her mother-in-law. She says, sure, if this is what you think is best, I will follow your instructions. And when she does, things happened just as Naomi said that they would. Boaz, after he was done winnowing, ate and he drank And he was content and rejoicing in God's provision. I could just see Boaz looking at this massive harvest and this great feast and all of his employees are going to be cared for for another year. And just after that feast, laying down next to a pile of grain and just thinking, man, the Lord is so good. Look at God's faithfulness to me once again. And he lays down now near a pile of grain. Once he drifts off to sleep, Ruth follows the instructions. She Kind of incognito sneaks up, she uncovers his feet, and then she lays down near him. Now, one of the reasons why I don't believe that this was a sexual advance is that it seems like she would have been much more forward if that were the case. But when you read the story here, after she uncovers his feet, she just lays down and several hours pass by until the cold chill of the night seems to work the magic that Naomi was hoping it would work and it just causes him to wake up because he's cold and he rolls over to adjust his cloak and warm up. And when he does, he's startled at the sight of a woman. Obviously startled at the sight of a woman. You can't help but think back to the Garden of Eden where Adam, who had no helpmate, who had no companion who was like him, is put into a deep sleep by the Lord and the Lord takes one of his ribs and out of his rib forms Eve so that she would literally be flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone, speaking of the incredible union that happens between husband and wife at marriage. When Adam wakes up, he's startled by this woman, this woman Eve. And you kind of get that same sense here with Boaz. He wakes up and is just like, what in the world is going on? And he asks the question because it's so dark, who are you? She says, I am Ruth, your servant. And then here comes the proposal in verse nine. She says, spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer. Now, I don't recommend trying to steal that verbatim. If any of the singles are out there like, that is so good. I'm just gonna put a little note in my phone and borrow that for future reference. I don't don't recommend trying that on somebody you're interested in. This is very specific language that is full of meaning. What this language does actually is it takes us back to chapter 2, verse 12, and it takes us back to the words that Boaz himself had spoken. Look back at verse 12 of chapter 2. This was their first encounter when Boaz met Ruth. He said to her in verse 12, the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. 
Remember, we talked about how that expression meant that he saw that, that Ruth had come and she had sought refuge and provision from the Lord. And now what Ruth is essentially saying to Boaz is she's saying to him, be the answer to your own prayer. Be the means by which Yahweh covers me and provides for me and protects me. Become my redeemer. Become my husband. Become the one who takes care of me. It's a great proposal. But it's also a really bold proposal. I mean, people today still talk about whether or not it's appropriate for a woman to propose to a man. But here we see a woman not just proposing, but like directly commanding. She's like, spread your wings over me, Boaz. This woman is telling him that she wants him to marry her. And not just a a woman saying this to a man, but a younger person saying this to an older person. And not just that, but a servant saying this to her boss, her landowner. Not just that, but a foreigner saying this to a native Israelite. This is incredibly bold, almost brazen, to be quite honest with you. And so how does Boaz, this man of God, respond to this situation? Well, you see it in the text. He says, get behind me, Satan. No, I'm just kidding. The answer is he's delighted by this proposal. It's remarkable. He responds to it, in fact, with a promise, which brings us to the third movement here in verses 10 through 13. He's going to respond with a promise. Let's look at verse 10 first. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. So she proposes in some very unique circumstances. And his response is to bless her. He doesn't embarrass her. He doesn't shame her. He blesses her. And after he blesses her, He he says that he actually sees her desire to marry him as a great act of kindness. He says, in fact, this is a greater act of kindness than the acts of kindness that you have already demonstrated. How so? Well, Ruth could have pursued marriage with just some other young man in Israel and pursued marriage, gotten married, and she would have taken care of herself and secured her own future. But if she had done that, she would have left Naomi out to dry. It was obvious in chapter two that, and from what Boaz just says here in chapter three, that Ruth was a very attractive and sought after woman, okay? She came with an accent and she was beautiful and lots of the men in Israel that were single young bachelors were interested. And she could have probably, again, easily sought marriage with one of them. But if she had done that again, Naomi and her family would have been left unredeemed. And so in choosing Boaz, Ruth is securing not just her own future, but she's caring for and securing the future of Naomi as well. And Boaz is blown away by this. Boaz is so impressed by Ruth's selfless loyalty and devotion. So he makes her this promise. He says to her, listen, do not be afraid. He would only say that if there was reason to be afraid. Again, I I get the sense as I read this text that, again, this whole encounter, this whole plan was a, a very shaky risky one. The outcome was certainly not guaranteed. And he looks at her and he says, don't be afraid. Okay. I will do for you. This is verse 11, all that you ask. And then check out what he says next. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. 
This is awesome. She has this incredible reputation. That word there, worthy, in the Hebrew is important because it's the exact same word if you go back to chapter 1 of verse 2 that was used to describe Boaz himself. And last week we talked about how that Hebrew word worthy meant that Boaz was a man of standing in Israel. That he was a man of substance. He had wealth. He had position. He had power. He had influence. He was respected by the community. And he had integrity. And now he's saying, you know what? That same reputation that I have is your reputation here in Bethlehem as well. What's so remarkable about this is that obviously he can't be speaking to his wealth. He can't be speaking to his status, his power. He's not speaking about any of that when he says that we share the same status. The only thing he could be pointing to, because they were not equals in those areas, the only thing that he could be pointing to is that they were equals in character. And at the end of the day, that's what mattered most. That he looked at this woman who from an earthly standpoint brought nothing to the table. She brought nothing into the marriage. And yet because of her character, her reputation, her godliness, he saw her as an equal and as a match made in heaven. Again, if she was seeking an an illicit sexual relationship that night, this would be a very odd thing for Boaz to say about her. So he makes this promise. When you read verse 11, you're kind of like, awesome, everything's figured out. It's all sorted. The Redeemer has come, but not so fast. There's another speed bump in verse 12. And now it is true, verse 12, that I am a Redeemer. So he's like, you're right about that. Yet there's a Redeemer nearer than I. Now, Naomi was probably aware, about, aware of this other relative who was a closer relative than Boaz. Maybe that explains part of why she hatched this plan. Either she or Ruth or maybe both of these women saw Boaz as a better match. Or maybe they just looked at the way things had unfolded in their life already and said, man, Boaz seems to be the one that God is providing us or providing for us through. Let's target him. Let's pursue Boaz. And they hatched this plan. But Boaz says, listen, I'm going to sort this out first thing in the morning. For now, I want you to stay the night here. And the reason for this, of course, is because it would be very dangerous to send her back into the city in the middle of the night. He says, I want you to stay here. And he's going to send her home first thing in the morning. Now, we need to pause here and consider something together. And what we need to consider is the godliness of this man, Boaz. His godliness was such that even with this level of temptation, having a young woman who was beautiful, who was attractive, who smelt great, and who was essentially professing her love for him, even though she shows up in the middle of the night, he didn't even budge morally. That's incredible. The only other character this reminds me of in scripture is Joseph. I take that back. Jesus, right? That's always the right answer. The only other non-divine character in all the Bible is Joseph. And you remember his encounter with Potiphar's wife, who was also, sometimes we think of her as this very old woman, much older than Joseph. Actually, probably not. She was probably a young woman married to this wealthy man. And she tries to get Joseph to sleep with her. And literally rips his cloak off of his back and he runs out of the house that he managed for this wealthy man Potiphar. In both these instances, the only thing that you can conclude is that their character and their godliness was such 
that they had already habituated a response to temptation over many years of saying no to sexual temptation, of turning down those offers to allow their minds to go there so that even in a moment that would present tons of potential for human weakness to, t- to carry the day, they were approached by that temptation and their knee-jerk response was, not in a million years. It's remarkable. It's incredible. It's a great warning and encouragement for all of us of how important it is to have godliness being formed in us. I also want to mention a word about alcohol here. I think this is so insightful. Obviously, Boaz was drinking alcohol as he was feasting that night and going to bed. The Bible nowhere says that Christians cannot drink alcohol. In fact, in many places, the Bible even speaks favorably of alcohol. What the Bible does condemn, though, is drunkenness. It condemns being intoxicated, coming under the influence of alcohol. And one of the questions that Christians often ask is, where would I know where that boundary is or where that line is? I think Boaz gives us a great answer to that. Notice how Boaz engaged with alcohol. He did not drink enough to lose his mental or moral faculties. Do you see that in the text? Whatever amount of alcohol he drank, he could be again woken up in the dead of night and there was no disturbance in his mental faculty or his moral reasoning. He was in complete control of his thoughts, of his speech, and of his actions. And I think that becomes the litmus test. If you drink to the point that those things become impaired, you have transgressed. And you're no longer being sober-minded like the scriptures would call us to. And I just love seeing, again, this example from Boaz. And you just see this picture of a man who had complete self-control in all these different areas of his life. Well, I better hurry or we're going to be here all day. And some of you are going to be three shades darker than you were when you showed up to church. The fourth movement in the text is the provision in verses 14 through 18. Notice what Boaz does. He sends her off before anyone could recognize her. Why does he do that? He does that to protect her honor, to protect his own honor, and also to protect this other relative, should that relative decide that he wants to marry Ruth. This is a godly man. But unlike Naomi, Boaz would not be rash. And I love this. Did Boaz want Ruth? What do you guys think? Did he want Ruth? Of course he did. Was he attracted to her? Would he have loved to have married this woman? Of course he wanted her. But he wasn't going to break God's laws to get her. Whereas Naomi was willing to operate rashly to try to achieve her ends, Boaz said, hey, I would be glad to redeem you. But you know what? I have no right at this point. God's law stipulates that there is another relative who has that right. And I need to go make him aware of this before I actually redeem you. So rather than breaking God's laws to get her, he trusts in the Lord. And you can almost see his reasoning spelled out for us in the text. His reasoning is, look, if this other relative marries her and redeems her, all fine and well. She'll be taken care of, and I'm going to trust that God's got something better for me. But if not, then I will gladly marry her myself. I get Ruth. Notice, though, before he sends her home, He kind of repeats what we saw in their first encounter. He loads her up with a ton of grain. It says there's six measures of barley given to her. But notice it doesn't tell us the measurement. So we don't know. 
But it does seem like it's an awful lot of barley because he actually has to take her outer garment, this cloak, and he fills it up with a bunch of, um, of barley. And then in verse 15, notice what it says. It says that he put it on her. It's almost like he had to load the cloak up on her back so that she could carry this thing back to Naomi. It's a sign of abundance. And in verse 17, we see that he sent this back to send a message to Naomi. And I love this. What was the message he was sending to her? The message was this, stop worrying. Naomi, stop worrying. Stop trying to control it. Stop trying to figure it out. I will take care of everything. Just because the harvest has ended, that does not mean that my provision has ended. One way or another, Yahweh will take care of you. It's going to be through this other redeemer or it'll be through me. Stop worrying. I was talking to Ty the other day about chapter three and he asked this question. He said, why do you think this chapter is in there? <laughs> like why, what is God trying to say to the church with this passage? And that is certainly the right question to ask. Well, it's definitely not to teach us how to marry off our daughters. We've learned that much. One of the things that's important in interpretation of the Bible, especially if it's a narrative like this, meaning it's a story, is trying to determine whether or not this passage is descriptive or prescriptive. What I mean by that is sometimes when you read stories in the Old Testament, it's prescriptive. You read the story and it's prescribing a course of action that we should follow. Other times, and I believe this is one of these times, the passage is not prescriptive. It's just descriptive. It's just describing the events that happened in real time. And I think that's the point of what's going on here. So here's the takeaway for us today. If our redemption was left up to us, we would certainly mess it up. If our redemption was left up to us, we would certainly mess it up. Let me put this differently. Naomi's plan did not work because of the quality of the plan. Naomi's plan worked because of the quality of the Redeemer. That's the only reason. Had she tried this on any other man in Bethlehem that night, it's likely that that would have ended disastrously. Whatever we can say about Naomi, again, we know her motive was good, but we could say whatever we want about her method. But it seems like this woman, with whatever measure of faith she had, she got one thing right when she made this plan. And the one thing that she got right is that she trusted in Boaz. She believed that he would do what was right. And so it is for all of God's children. When it comes to your redemption, when it comes to my redemption, the key is to put our trust and confidence in the Redeemer, Christ Jesus. Well, how do I know he'll accept me? Some might ask. Should I clean up my life and get my act together? Kind of the equivalent of her bathing and putting on this nice perfume. Is that what I need to do? Should I do that? Should I come in secret and under the cover of darkness? Surely if Jesus saw me for who I truly am, he'd reject me. Should I try to catch him off guard? Maybe if I can do that, he'll make a rash decision and accidentally accept me and not reject me. Family, the lesson of chapter three is that it matters not how you come. It only matters that you come. The salvation is in the hands of the redeemer, not in the scheming of the woman who needed it. It matters not how you come, only that you come.
Again, we can question Naomi's methods, but not her motive. She wanted her daughter to find rest. And Boaz, the redeemer that God had appointed, would gladly give it to her. Similarly, Jesus invites all of us who are looking for rest to come to him. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You know, a lesser man could have been insulted by Ruth and Naomi's plan or could have exploited it. A Hebrew legalist would have been insulted and rebuffed the young Moabitess. What are you doing? Don't you know how this could be interpreted? You're making me look bad. Get away from me. On the other hand, a Hebrew libertine could have taken advantage of this situation. Oh, dumb girl. These foreigners, they just don't get it. She has no idea. She's so naive. Oh, well, forget redemption. I'm just interested in romance. But a Hebrew redeemer overlooks her foolishness and protects her in her ignorance and promises her redemption because he loves her. And he says to her, don't be afraid. I'll do everything that you've asked of me. Again, it, not, it mattered not how she came to him, but that she came to him. Hear then the words of our Savior and Redeemer this morning from John six thirty seven: Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. What a Redeemer we have in Jesus. And that, my friends, is the point of chapter three. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this amazing passage of scripture. And thank you for what this passage teaches us, not just about human love, but even more so about divine love. Lord, we're reminded this morning of your graciousness toward us, that you redeem us not because we get things right in our own lives, not because we fix things, not because we present ourselves to you in the right way, You redeem us because you love us and you draw us to yourself and all that we must do is come in faith. And even the smallest measure of faith, an imperfect faith placed in the perfect redeemer is enough to save us from all of our misery. Lord, what a great message. What a great reminder. Father, I pray that you'd help us today to grow in our trust in Jesus, our redeemer remembering that he came to this earth and lived the life that we couldn't live, that he voluntarily went to the cross to die for our sins so that we could be forgiven, so that those obstacles could all be removed and we could have eternal union with you. Lord, strengthen our faith today. Help us to grow in our love and our desire to honor and worship you. We love you, Lord. We thank you for this great reminder of your love for us. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.